will travel, take away. Um, can you help me out here on this? Uh, there's a handout going along the way. I, I had my stuff on there, but can you can you can you? Oh, get uh, you need to come back and shut it down. Is there a? Yeah. Sorry. You're, yeah. He's on the desktop, but you need to get, no, get him back. Just get kill him. yourself. Okay, yep. I can do that. Okay, okay, am I there? there? I'm loaded. Perfect. All right. I'm such a. I'm so left cool. One. Left one. <laughs> Thank you. Double click. There you go. All right. Now go down to the bottom. Uh, by the way, that was a, that was, that was, that was, that was a great uh, that was a great intro. Thanks. Okay. So. Yeah, there's a handout to. Uh, to make thing, uh, things a little easier. Now, how do I, how do I get it to the screen now? Just touch it again. Touch it again. Uh, we're, let's, where's our computer guru? He's coming. Well, it's jumped back. No, but he's it, yeah, got to no. hit something to make it say hello to the screen. Oh, Just hold on. I'm, uh, maybe. I'm, yeah, there's a button over here. Right? Oh, did it? So, uh, it's being turned on again now. Probably going to take about 30 seconds. It's, it's coming, it's coming okay. back on now. Okay, good. Thanks. <laughs> 18, 17. You can start talking. Well, I, I've got a cartoon, so I need the cartoon. Anyway, I'm Dennis Lamarow. Yeah, we've, we've met, met before. Have we? We, we, we met down at Washington and Jefferson College when you gave a talk. You know, I saw you, and I go, you see many people from ASA. Okay, cool. Thanks. Here we go. Well, Arnold was fixing something. I was breaking something. Great. Well, thanks very much. That was an absolutely terrific introduction. I'll remember that one for a while. Um, cartoons. I like cartoons. I hope everyone has a handout. Make things a little easier here. Cartoons are windows on the culture. Do you believe in evolution or creation? Both. I think some men developed from early ape-like creatures. I played college hockey with guys like that. <laughs> and some were created. Here's my theme. doesn't make sense. You're just jealous. <laughs> All right, here's the problem. You know, this audience... It's this false dichotomy between evolution and creation, and you can't be both. You've got to be A or B, but you can't be um, both together. Um, and I think this is a, a, a real struggle within our evangelical community. Um, always like starting with a few stats. And, of course, it's that, that doesn't make sense, and that's the theme I'm going to go through. Um, it's because people are trapped in this dichotomy. You're either an evolutionist, and when it comes to design, and you saw some earlier slides today, uh, the delusion of design, you reject God, and of course you're on the scientific side of the house, or you're a creationist, you accept uh, intelligent design, you accept God, and you're on the religious side. But the question I have is, are we trapped in the dichotomy, or can we get beyond this either-or sort of approach to things? 
okay, and this is something that's, you know, in particular for, for our community. And, and, and I'm an evangelical. I, I, I love the faith. But within the evangelical community, we really wrestle with this issue, and in particular with the biblical text. And, yeah, there are a lot of stats out there. And on the back of your handout, you'll see this uh, website to a study of American evangelicals in 2004. And the key to a lot of these studies is what's questions being asked. And I love this question because it gets right to the point. The creation story in which the world was created in six days is literally true, meaning it happened that way word for word. And the number within it's, the, I'd say, basically the same in the Canadian evangelical community is 87%. Can you see how we're locked and loaded to walk in to the dichotomy? Of course, and this is our constituency, and of course, we also have the tension with regards to the academy. So what's going on within the Evangelical Academy, and this was a, a study uh, published in the journal uh, Science by uh, Sutherland in 05, and of evangelical biologists in the uh, Coalition of Christian Colleges and Universities, the CCCCU, with regards to their view and origins. And they found that 25% are young earth creationists. By the way, that citation's in the back of the handle as well. 50% are progressive creationists, or classical old earthers. And I'm going to use this term theistic evolution just for the sake that came out of this uh, article, are theistic evolutionists. thing to note with regard to these stats, 75% of the biologists within our Colleges are anti-evolutionists, but inversely, 75% believe in an old earth. Well, that's within the biological academy, what's going on within the theological academy. And I mean, when I cut my, this is one of my first Bibles, you know, Charles Ryrie, the study Bible, uh, the NESB. And we've all seen charts like this with regards to the scripture. And you'll notice they're giving us dates and you know exactly when the flood came about. And they're seeing this as hard and fast history. However, have you noticed in the Today's new international version, and we have similar sort of start, uh, chart at the beginning of the book. We have biblical history, and we see Abraham in place in Genesis 11, and we're trying to line it up with world history, and there's a lot of it that is constant. However, notice at the top here, pretty empty. And what I really was shocked when I bought my first copy of the TNAV is if you flip over to the other page, look what we've got. Nothing. And not only that, and you can't see it too clearly, those are all a bunch of question marks. So what's going on within the Theological Academy, hermeneutically in the er early uh, chapters of the scriptures? And just before getting on the plane, there's a great calling, a new friend I met up at uh, Trinity Western Ontario, a, a genesis named Dennis Vimai, and he gave me this passage, and I almost passed out. And here's, here is one of the most important evangelical theologians living today, and says the following in his magnum opus of 1,400 pages that's just come out the best harmonious synthesis of special revelation of the Bible, of general revelation of human nature as in the heart, and of science is the theory of, does anyone want to fill in the blank? Theistic evolution, does anyone know who it is? One of my former professors, I can't wait to get home and phone him up and say, Dr. Waldy, wonderful, wonderful man. Okay, what's my point? I think there's something going on within the community. Now, one thing I like doing is putting it right on the table. Where am I coming from? All right, I am a thoroughly committed and unapologetic evangelical theologian trained to the PhD level. I am a born-again Christian. I believe the Bible is the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
I drink from it daily every morning. I was in, in, in uh, Daniel 4 today in, in Nebuchadnezzar. And I believe in prayer and I experience miracles. I'm a charismatic Christian. And this is a loaded word. I believe in intelligent design. And you saw some intelligent design arguments just previous to me. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and so too does the cell. Uh, my brief definition of intelligent design is simply this, a belief that beauty, complexity, and functionality points to an amazing mind. And, you probably knew this was coming, I'm a thoroughly committed and unapologetic evolutionary biologist, also trained to the PhD level in the evolution of some of the best evolutionary evidence, the evolution of teeth and jaws. I have a dentistry background, so that was an easy move through. I am steeped in evo-devo. That was my conversion point. I might add, I went into that second PhD as an anti-evolutionist with the intention of attacking evolutionary theory. I find, and I'm not the first one to say this, after three and a half years of seeing the data, the evidence is simply overwhelming. It has never been falsified. It is the easiest theory to falsify. Find me one human molar down in the Cambrian. I'll identify it for you. And this is not an exaggeration. We'll turn all the science upside down. And when it comes to the explanatory uh, power of biology, biology makes sense in light of evolutionary theory. If you want to know all those pseudogenes we've got that we share with chimpanzees, that's where it comes from. So here's my position. I love Jesus and I accept evolution. Praise the Lord, I've got tenure because this gets back to a secular university. I might get in trouble, right? <laughs> but that doesn't make any sense. Okay, let's see if I can try to make some sense to this. Okay, first terms and some definitions. Of course, we've got to do biblical hermeneutics. What am I doing with the Word of God? That, that's fair. And the naughty issue, whether you want to spell that with a K or an N of human origins. All right, terms and definitions. And this is in your handout. I think two terms that are so very important. And you heard the term disteleology in John uh, Bloom's lecture. Um, teleology, simply tell us a plan and purpose. Do you believe the universe has plan and purpose? Or is your universe a disteleological in which there is no plan and purpose, i.e. one suggested by, by Richard Dawkins. With regards to the word evolution, when I'm in the paleontology department, there's believers, there are unbelievers. When we do science, we look at evolution as simply being a natural process period, natural process going from molecules to people. That's it. No reference to metaphysics. And when I'm with my theological college in my, my Catholic school, or I'm with the Baptists and another college in Edmonton, we talk about the doctrine of creation. It's just simply the belief that all the stuff around us is a function of a creator. Of course, and here's the problem in the culture, evolution is conflated, collapsed into disteleological evolution. Do, don't let Richard Dawkins own the term evolution. It may well be that evolution is teleological, and you can narrow your plan and purpose ultimately, as I do, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So with that being the case, notice what we can do. I am a thoroughly committed and unapologetic creationist defined in the professional theological sense of the thing. I believe the world is a creation. I believe in a creator. I am an evolutionist, not to be conflated with Richard Dawkins, radically different with Richard Dawkins, and thus that makes me a teleological evolutionist. Okay, this funny sort of term, evolutionary creation, I didn't coin it. It comes from reform circles. Howard Van Til introduced it to me in the 1990s. Um, most important term, the substantive, the noun, creation. Most important category is the creation, not the adjective evolution. Because you'll see this term, theistic evolution, and I find that this is an inversion of order that's not correct. Because look what you've got. You've got the noun, evolution, being the primary term, and you're having Thales, God, riding shotgun. 
God will never ride shotgun to any scientific theory, in my opinion. So evolutionary creation, and this is why I don't use the term theistic evolution. Another reason I don't use the term theistic evolution is becomes which theos, which God. And of course, there's a whole bunch of them. I'm often accused of being a deist. Uh, Charles Darwin in The Origin of Species definitely had a God, and you saw one of the quotes earlier with regards to the creator. It is not deism. It is not Ernst Haeckel's panpsychism. And remember this name, and you'll notice in one of the, I love the way some of these presentations sort of dovetailed. Uh, this is a guy who had an inordinate hatred for Christians, so it's not uh, Ernst Haeckel's panpsychism. It is not the pantheism, the physical pantheism, or Spinoza's pantheism of Albert Einstein, though there's a lot of God talk in some of his literature. And it is definitely not, and I oppose, the panentheism or the process theology of of Whitehead. Okay, how about a definition? Evolutionary creation. I believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit created the universe and life through an ordained, it ain't a mistake, it was totally the Lord's plan, sustained, he upholds every quark or whatever those small particles are for you physics guys, and design reflecting evolutionary process. One of the great ways of sort of looking at this, and this is not my argument, this comes from the 19th century of evangelicals coming to terms with, uh, with Darwin. Darwin's forgotten defenders, as David Livingston said, is to look at what goes on in the womb and carry the analogy over to evolution. What about divine action? Does any of us believe that when our mother's womb, the Lord came out of heaven and attached an arm and attached a leg? No. We think of Psalm 139 where the Lord knit us together within our mother's womb. So in other words, I see evolution in the same way I see development in the womb as an ordained, sustained, and natural process, no God of the gaps. And I am not philosophically opposed to the God of the gaps, just that I don't see these gaps in nature. Second, what about intelligent design? Well, I believe in intelligent design, and back to Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I might add, I have double the design argument of the anti-evolutionists. We'll agree on complexity and functionality and beauty and the static operations of the world, but I extend that to the evolutionary side. I mean, we heard it just in the lecture previously with regards to cosmology. I think there's an argument starting with regards to evolutionary biology and, of course, the issue of the image of God and human sin, and we'll talk a little bit more about this. I believe they're utterly real and they're mysteriously manifested. And I don't take out the M card because I'm in trouble. I take it out because I think this is truly a mystery in terms of how the image is manifested. And we'll talk a little bit more about it. Okay, biblical hermeneutics. And I have to give you, and I think personal story is pretty important. What's the University of Toronto Med School all about? This is, this is my holiest place. This is my mecca in the world. When I'm in Toronto, I always go down to these steps because I made the biggest decision in my life. I walked out of med school after three days to become a creation scientist. So was I committed to a very literalistic, anti-evolutionary view? You bet. And here's my diary. Going on to theology school, registration day, Regent College, UBC, August 30th. The grand plan? To declare absolute and pure hell on the theory. The reason I'm saying this and presenting this is I want you to know where I was to where I've come from. And what happened at Regent College? Well, I walked in with the following assumption. You have this definition in your notes. I, and I like qualifying it the term scientific concordism, it is the assumption, and not many people are aware of this assumption, they just take it, and we, we, we pick it up in our churches, the assumption that God reveals scientific and facts in the Bible thousands of, year, thousands of years before the discovery by modern science. This is very reasonable. 
God is the creator of his works. God is the author of his word. It is reasonable to suggest that the two align. But here's the question, and this is what shook me up when I was at Regent College, but is it true? It doesn't undermine the word of God. It undermines an assumption we have of the word of God. And on your handout, this is what started deconstructing me. Have you ever noticed in the scriptures what we actually have with regards to the structure of the world? is a three-tier type universe. You don't have to go very far into the, into the scripture. And we had Paul Seeley give an excellent presentation yesterday afternoon. Second day of creation, God created a rakia. And that's exactly what the word means in Hebrew. A hard for its surface to lift the waters above from waters below. And of course, we sit there and go, that doesn't make any sense. You know that song, dance like an Egyptian, walk like an Egyptian? Think like an Egyptian. Put yourself in the ancient Near East, that big blue dome above you. Not a bad idea. It says there's water up there. It occasionally spits at you. Again, not a bad idea. Sun, moon, and stars are placed in it. Isn't that what it looks like? So what did I start seeing? I saw an ancient phenomenological perspective of the world. Not to be confused with our modern phenomenological perspective. We know that's the scattering of blue light at the, at the, at the blue end of the, the spectrum. So what we have to do is think like them. And so what they saw, they believed is real. In other words, this is the best science of the day being used as a vessel by the Holy Spirit to get across the point we are a creation. It is an ancient science. And to give you some evidence with regards to that, and just to set, I'm just not this liberal on the loose, this comes, take a look at that picture. That's the Shamash plaque. And if you probably noticed in the, in the book display, uh, this picture on John Walton from Wheaton, uh, who put that right in the cover. I mean, John was doing a polemical move to say there is a three-tier universe up there. And so what you see with the Shamash plaque, yeah, this is the sun god of the Mesopotamians, but notice the structures there. There's your waters above, there's your firmament, and there's your heavenly bodies. Go over to the Egyptians, we see the very same sort of thing. From their perspective, makes perfect sense. Separate away the theology, but you're going to see there's your water, there's your firmament, there's your stars, in the firmament, there's the sun god Ray in his boat going across the waters. Now, if you notice in that little handout, there's sort of, uh, and Paul said it so well yesterday, that there's a frisbee. You know, the earth is sort of like a frisbee. And we actually have a world map from uh, uh, the 6th century BC in which you have a circumferential sea all the way around the, uh, the Babylonian world. And they talk about Babylon being at the belly button or the navel of the world. And you sort of say, what do you make of this with water all around? Think like an Egyptian, think like a Mesopotamian. You're in Babylon, people are traveling about, what are they hitting? Water, not such a bad idea. Now think about the scriptures in Isaiah 41. The calling of Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees, which was at the ends of the earth, makes perfect sense. Or think about the Queen of Sheba being called to, uh, going to uh, visit Solomon, where Jesus says she came from the ends of the earth. To, to meet Solomon. So the ancient science is being there, and it's fairly clear. What about Genesis 1? I think it's a magnificent piece of literature inspired by the Holy Spirit. But you see this deep structure here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was, and here's the Hebrew, tohu bohu. Not much rhyming scheme in Hebrew, but this catches us. And this tohu bohu, this formless and empty, is being, is being used as a device to line up the parallel panels. So you'll notice on your first three days, you're solving the darkness problem, separation of light from darkness. Now, if you understand the firmament, this makes sense. Separation of the waters above from waters below, and then separation of water from dry land. Now, look at how this aligns. This is brilliant. You got light on day one, luminaries on day three. With regard to day five, biologists, what's the taxonomical connection between flying creatures and sea creatures? There is none, but there's a literary one. You got an empty space, you got a water, 
area, and finally, us. Question, scientific and courtism? I can't go there anymore. Well, what am I going to do? I use a principle called the message incident principle to separate the divine theology from the incidental ancient science. So there's an ancient science, and it's not a mistake. The Holy, when the Holy Spirit met you, did he not come down to your level when you encountered Christ? So too in the revelatory process. So let's take a passage from Philippians, you know, uh, the Canada passage. At the name of uh, Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, I think everyone can pick that up in terms of the divine message, but Jesus is Lord where? In heaven, on earth, and you got it. And not just under the earth, it's the chthonic realm, catechothonios, the underworld. So what you're seeing here is the three-tiered universe. We separate the message away. That's where Paul was at from which we can go ahead. And, and, and I submit, you don't need all this hermeneutical fancy stuff to encounter Jesus. I mean, I didn't see any of this as a young earth creationist, but did I get Jesus as Lord? Absolutely. That's the proficiency and sufficiency of the text. So with regards to astronomy, if you haven't read the letter to Christina by Galileo, I mean, this is a brilliant astronomer, but his hermeneutics are just amazing. Right? The intention of the Holy Spirit is to teach us how one goes to heaven and not how heaven goes. We can co-op that to the evolution discussion today. The intention of the Bible is to teach us that God is the creator, not how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created. So, message incident principle. I think it's easy to see. The message is God in Genesis 1 to 3 is a creation. The world's very good. We're creating the image of God. We're sinners. God judges sin. But with regards to the creation of the world, it is quick and complete. It is de novo creation. It is the best science of the day. So we'll separate and not conflate the two. Here's one of my heroes. The Bible is not a book of science. That kind of shook me up when I heard that. The Bible is a book of redemption. And of course, I believe the creation story. I believe that God did create the universe. I believe that God created humanity. And I don't know if anyone's ever seen this before, whether it came by an evolutionary process and at a certain point, he took this person to being and made him a living soul or not. I love Graham. He's not going to overstep his, his, his academic competency. does not change the fact that God did create humanity. Whichever way God did it makes no difference as to what men and women are. You know he believes we're creating the image of God and we're sinful. And the relationship to God restored through Christ. Who does a better job of preaching this? All right. Human origins, the tough issue. In your handout. It is clear that I don't embrace a disteleological Richard Dawkins understanding of evolution that is atheistic, driven by blind chance, and we're nothing but animals controlled by physical instincts. I'm an evolutionary creationist. I believe human origins is ordained and sustained by God. We're created in the image of God, fallen into sin, and these are non-negotiable. I won't even discuss it. This is where I start. However, big question, how and when? And that's a tough question. Let's go back to the womb. Wonderful parallels to be done in the womb. Question, when did you start bearing the image of God? And I'm going to do this just for the fun of it. Did you get half an image from the sperm cell and half an image from the egg? Did you get half a sin from mom and half a sin from dad? Or did you get the whole sin from dad and no sins from mom? I mean, that's one way of looking at it. My mom's a saint. <laughs> Was it a punctiliar event, punctus in Latin, at a point? Did it come thundering in at fertilization? You know, it is two-cell stage, first heartbeat, brain activity, whatever stage you want. Or is it possible that it's very, very real, but we really can't find a point, but through a mysterious 
And I mean mysterious in its fullest sense. We don't have the, we don't have the epistemological apparatus to fully grasp it, a mysterious and gradual manifestation. Well, with that being the case, let's try this on the human evolution account. Remember, we don't evolve from chimps. I mean, the moment I hear Christians saying we evolve from chimps or monkeys, I know this person has not done the science. We descend from a common ancestor about six million, uh, six million years ago. Doesn't bear the image, is not sinful, and of course, we bear the image and we're sinful today. Here's just some options. Punctiliar event. Could it be evolutionary monogenism where an Adam and Eve are pulled off the evolutionary herd? And that's where we go. Possibility number one. How about punctiliar at a point, polygenism, poly, many, in which you have many Adams and Eves? Or the way I go is using my metaphor from an analogy from the womb. Could it be a gradual polygenistic approach where over many generations, uh, the mysterious and manifest, uh, gradual manifestation of sin and the image of God emerge, and there are no real Adams and Eves along the way. And by the way, I just got thrown just the way. This is Lucy's job there. I, I practiced dentistry for over 25 years. And, you know, when you're peering in these dentitions day in and day out, and the first time I saw Lucy, it hit me like a ton of bricks. If I would take that jaw, cover it over with a rubber dam, you know the rubber masks dentists put over your teeth? And show it to my, your, my colleagues, they would all say the first thing that's pretty dark, this kid must have been out of, born in the 60s, which there's a tetracycline stain. Well, that's the fossilization thing. Um, that dentition and those cusps and those bumps and grooves are effectively identical to us. But the one thing we know about this dentition that Lucy has, uh, and 35 million years ago, um, we know this, this is, it has a, a CC capacity of just a little larger than chimpanzee. All right, human origins. Last common ancestor. Here's a way of looking at it, comparing it to chimpanzees who are closest evolutionary relatives, in which chimpanzees do not bear the image, chimpanzees are not sinful, and we who have the image. What are some possibilities? Leave these as possible. Are you like Billy Graham? As a possibility, if he went to the evolutionary route, evolutionary monogenism, and wherever these you know these show up on the are, are purely arbitrary, or possibility of punctiliar polygenism or the position I sort of hold a gradual polygenistic approach to things in which these things are manifested but I can't really find a point on that because I can't see the same sort of point going on in the womb. Thing to note, some people are really threatened that we're only 1% difference between chimpanzees and us. You know, effectively we're identical in, in the flesh. But you know, stop and think. The Lord has put on this planet a critter that's almost the same in us in the flesh. But, but can't you see that they're so much different than us and we're so much different from them? When is the last time you've read chimp poetry? When, when, when is the last time you've, you've sang chimp and worship uh, music? When's the last time chimps have put a rover on Mars? When's the last time you've had a lecture from a chimp university professor? Don't answer that question. <laughs> We're so much more than flesh. I mean, I think this is fabulous. And we have a reason to believe why. And you heard the references to co-creators. I think the greatest thing that the Lord has given us is this creative impulse. And just think about all the guys who are scientists that do the science stuff and the academic. It's, the Lord's delighting in this stuff we do because that's an element that we, we have, by God's grace, been given. Okay, final reflections. 
uh, define the terms, especially this word evolution. You have to put the brakes on people and say, are you a disteleological evolution? What sort of evolutionist are you? And by the way, on the back of the handout, you'll notice I've got a series of categories. And on my website, I, un I go there a little more and I compare and contrast the different positions. And the other thing I forgot to mention is, uh, thanks to ASA, I published a paper on the three-tier universe in March. So if you want to see uh, that in a lot more detail, you're more than welcome to go there. Okay. Question, are evangelicals coming to terms with evolution? Let me tell you, I find this a really interesting coincidence. I just about jump, you know, I'm just about to jump on a plane, and then I get the Bruce Waltke quote, and I'm, my head is still spinning on that. Uh, the one thing I will say that when I became an evolutionist, uh, my love for the Lord Jesus didn't change one iota compared to when I was a young earth creationist. My hermeneutics are different. My science is different. Fair enough. Question, is Genesis 1 to 3, can we use this as a precedent? What do I mean by that? If we look at Genesis 3 and we see this 1 to 3, this ancient science, that the Holy Spirit's going down and using, using this ancient stuff as a vessel to give us the living waters, using John 4 as the metaphor, could it be that we can, we can do the very same thing? We take out the living waters and then put it within an evolutionary context, and at the same time, though I'm an evolutionary biologist, I understand science, maybe evolution's all going to crash and burn. We're going to be able to take the living waters out and put it on whatever scientific theory we come up as being the best scientific theory. And finally, and here's my last point, and really it's the only reason. Do I argue my case? Sure. Do I force it? Absolutely not. I have one really, I mean, it, it shakes me every time. I teach in a secular university. And my heart goes out to the pre-matters, because they're seeing all the evolutionary evidence, especially the molecular stuff today, the evo-devo and evolutionary genetic stuff. And uh, I have kids that come into my class, and the only way they can survive down there is do the compartmentalizing thing. And they know this ain't the right way to do it. And some of them have lost their faith. I've chatted with kids like that, and it breaks my heart simply because of bad category set. My only suggestion is give them an option. Their faith can be remain intact. And uh, it's just a, a delight to be working in that sort of area. Okay, started with a cartoon. Here's my final cartoon. God throws the creationists a curve. But that doesn't make any sense. Maybe it does make sense. Thanks a lot. George Murphy. Do you know something? I don't, but maybe you can say there are. I mean, I'm, I'm, it, it's an area where I really haven't gone. That's a great question, George. I, I don't know. Yes, sir. Oh. That's a great question. And I don't want to sound like I'm self-righteous. This little book here, when I look at some theological colleagues that sort of started out basically the same route, keep the book closed. You watch what happens to the theology. Open the book. And again, I'm not saying this self-righteously. And you don't need any hermeneutical skill set to encounter Jesus in the text. Um, as this is going on, and believe me, there were moments where I was spinning pretty hard. There was always a sense of the Lord is there because I, I'm talking to the Lord every day in, in the Word of God. And, of course, the community of faith. 
talking about defining terms. So would you say you're an evolutionary creationist? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay, watch this. <laughs> There's my book. Sorry for the shameful. So I, 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 better be an, I better be an evolutionary creationist. You know, that's an interest. Is there a look at? There's a whole lot of polemic going on in that term. It's sort of putting ba people back on their heels. Again, I didn't coin it. It comes out of reform circles, and I wish I could find out who it was. But the whole point of, of putting that, if you wish, conundrum to the culture is to have them step back and say, what does evolution mean? What does creation mean? And you'll notice I got the word in the substantive. Now, another thing with regards to the, the cover, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a wonderful, I won't mention her name here, but it's a wonderful uh, colleague. She said to me, you know, you're really irritating but lovable. Here's me being irritating. This is Ernst Haeckel's evolutionary tree. And, and uh, there was a presentation here just a couple before. Ernst Haeckel hated Christians with a supernatural hatred. Uh, and if you go to his 1874 book, read the foreword. It's amazing what he says. I mean, he is the Dick Dawkins of the 18th century. So what have I done here being the irritating little man I am? I've, I've taken his evolutionary tree, and of course, I've brought in that big Sistine Chapel hand. And so am I creating a little bit of tension, little PR stuff, as you say? I confess. You're right. Margaret. Bingo. What do you say to students who ask that? Well, that's a great question. You know, so you know, so I never get that question in my class because I'm building the case as I go there, and I don't. You know, they'll say, "What about Adam and Eve?" I say, "Nope." Week twelve of a thirteen-week course. So you know something? I'll have to think about that, Margaret, because. Uh, but I. But but you see what I'll tell you what I do in my science religion class. Though it's called science and religion, it's really a hermeneutics class from day one. And it's going kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. And uh, I, will, I will say one thing with, with regards to the evangelicals, and I can always remember this absolutely delightful young woman named Crystal. She exploded in class, just, just snapped. She goes, I am so mad at my parents. They sent me to this evangelical school and paid all these dollars. I'm so mad at my pastor. And, and I said to her, I go, I get it. But you know something? If you want to do this, come to my office. You can even use bad words. <laughs> but when you go back to the church, we've got to rethink this, and we've got to be gentle because it takes a while to get there. What I've done here today, I wouldn't do in a church. I've got, I got, I got a select crew here, right? So uh, preaching to the choir. I'm preaching to the choir effectively. Uh, Mark, I'm going to think about that. It's a great question. I've never had it asked to me. Okay, well, let's thank Dennis and all of our students.